Welcome to the Rational Egoist. I'm your host, Michael Leibowitz. Uh, in addition to Ayn Rand, somebody that's had quite a bit of influence on my thinking is F.A. Hayek. And I haven't done a show on him yet. So today I've got Jim Valiant back on, my regular guest, and he knows quite a bit about Friedrich Hayek. So we're going to have a discussion. Jim, welcome to the show. Hi. Welcome yeah. back to the show. Well, it's always great to be here. I was just about to say, I'm feeling like it's old home for me. I'm yeah, feeling yeah. cozy yeah. Uh, having these conversations with you. It's great to see you. Yeah. I'm so grateful. Can I just say to your to your uh, listeners, I am grateful to have become a real friend of yours in recent months. And thank I want to thank you for that. It's been one of the great pleasures of my life to get to know you. Right uh, back at you. Yeah. And I, I love these conversations. I hope oh. the audience does too. I think they do. I, I get I get good feedback about our conversations. They think we're quite the quite the duo. And it, and it's funny because like when I'm on the other show, the you know, the reality show, often you'll type in and disagree with me. So I wonder what people are thinking. Oh, these two must hate each other. You know quite I mean? the opposite. I would never get passionately all caps with someone that I wasn't comfortable with, and I wouldn't have that disagreement in person with. I mean, it's only all caps because I care so much about what you think, because I care about what you think. Only to the extent that I cared about your judgment would it come out in all caps. Well, well thank you. So before we get to, to Hayek, I, I want to delve a little bit into the shaping of your own uh, political thinking. You know, where where did that come from? Because people may think of you, you know, you're the 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 critic of Nathaniel Brandon, or you're the objectivist philosopher or the author of Creating Christ, but there's so much more to you in your intellectual history. So tell us a little bit about that, your own development as a political thinker. Well, you know, I was a teenager in the 1970s, and I think we've discussed before what a watershed time the 1970s was politically. And that had a shaping of impact on me. I My first political awareness was Watergate, Vietnam, inflation of the stagflation of the 1970s. Boom. And that left a big impression. And like a lot of people, and I was a young person interested in ideas, I was interested in the new ideas. Uh, and this included economics. I have to say, along with you, Milton Friedman, for example, was one of the first people. There was a, a documentary based on his book, Free to Choose, that ran on PBS. And as a teenager, I, I watched the documentary, Free to Choose, that he narrated on economics. And uh, that was one of the, was my dad. My dad, my parents were interesting. My dad, Goldwater Republican, my mom, a Kennedy Democrat. Very different in their politics, but they both agreed about certain things like Martin Luther King. Right. They were both very much opposed to racism. And uh, it, it, they did have a benevolent influence, my parents and, and uh, Milton Friedman and so forth, because my dad was sort of nudging me in the direction of William Buckley and Milton Friedman, <laughs> that kind of thing. And so thanks to dad's uh, good uh, nudging, uh, uh, I began to explore economics more systematically. I became aware of the Austrian School of Economics pretty much through, interestingly enough, uh, people like Milton Friedman. It wasn't Ayn Rand who first plugged me into that. It was Milton Friedman. I came to much more identify with the Austrians than the Chicago School. Uh, even then, I could see that I was more comfortable with the direction that they were going. Um, and then, of course, there's Ayn Rand. <laughs> and Ayn Rand, uh, when I realized that Ayn Rand herself had connections with the Austrians, and that was a separate discovery. 
Ayn Rand herself has connections to Austrian economics. She endorses Austrian economics. Uh, that was a revelation. So between the two, I was, I guess it was inevitable that I was going to uh, be interested. When I went to NYU, started at NYU, one of the reasons why I went to New York University to get my undergraduate degree was so that I could study with the great Austrians. They have the, probably the densest concentration of Austrian economy. Gerald O'Driscoll, Larry White, the, the expert on his historian of free banking, Mario Rizzo, Israel Kersner. Oh my gosh. And guest lectures by Fritz Macklup. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and if I wasn't doing that, I was literally through the Center for Libertarian Studies, taking courses with Murray Rothbard. So, and then in the 1980s, I started attending the Jefferson School, which was founded by George Reisman. So I got to know a great many of the students of Mises. Uh, the American students of Mises were my teachers. Uh, there's no other way of describing it. So uh, like Hayek, I guess, Mises had a direct imp impact on the way I thought about economics, but I got my minor in economics as an undergrad studying with these guys. I worked, as you know, as a clerk at Laissez-Faire Books, uh, the libertarian bookstore, where all I did on the weekends was sell books. And when the store was slow, which was most of the time, I was reading economics and history and libertarian political tracts. How great was that? So just to work at, at Laissez-Faire Books, I'm guessing you were able to come in contact with even more you know, libertarian or classical liberal thinkers because they're coming in there. You know, maybe well, Peter McCann and, and Douglas Rasmussen <laughs> walk in the door one day. <laughs> no, the, yeah, libertarian. This was a, a nerve central, you know, uh, 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 HQ for libertarians in the world. Uh, it was Greenwich Village, Manhattan, New York. Uh, they had a brick and mortar bookstore there, laissez-faire books, just two blocks down from NYU where I was going uh, to school. So it was just perfect for me. And I, I did. I absorbed a lot of economics and a lot of history uh, because they had a vast collection of such books. And if the, and if it wasn't there on the shelves of the bookstore, I, as I say, I had these teachers of economics and history who had themselves been students of Ludwig von Mises. So I had the best guidance in terms of uh, that kind of literature. No question about it. So at some point you you had to have read Hayek. Uh, the there, first there thing I read time. was, the, of course, the famous influential Road to Serfdom. Red Road to Serfdom. I thought, well, of the general idea, I had all kinds of, I'd already had the asterisks put on it by Ayn Rand, if that makes sense. Um, and so uh, I was already keyed into value subjectivism, epistemological issues, things like that, uh, moral premises that we take for granted, all those kind of issues. So that when I read The Road to Serfdom, I did agree generally with the idea that we were on the road to serfdom and that one thing leads to another in the sense, in some of the sense that he was arguing. But I did have a bunch of reservations. Let me say that as I continued to read Hayek, I found things of much greater value. Law, Legislation, and Liberty in its multi-volumes, the Constitution of Liberty. As a lawyer, as someone who wanted to study law, those, you know, in the 1930s, starting in 1929, but in the 1930s, he really became famous for his work in price theory, business cycle theory, and it was, he was one of the first recipients, uh, Frederick Hayek, one of the first recipients of the Nobel Prize in economics. He was the fifth or the sixth recipient of 
of the Nobel Prize in he Economics. He was the first free market economist. The first free market, yeah. <laughs> exactly. The first who had any kind of a sensibility of what, what really works in economics. But uh, he super celebrated because in the 1970s, one of the things that happened was his receipt of the Nobel Prize. So that when I was a college undergraduate, there was a great deal of prestige to F.A. Hayek. And uh, but as I say, Ayn Rand had already put the asterisk there. So the stuff that I found the greatest value to was not so much. Uh, technical stuff on price theory or the business cycle, which I was getting from a bunch of other economists just as well, frankly, if not better, uh, not to put down his work in his pure, work in pure economics. It's his work uh, in law and the development of politics that I found valuable. The use of information. This is very much influenced by Mises, how information is disseminated in a free society made a huge impression on me. And as sort of a uh, someone who wanted to be a lawyer, I knew that I wanted to study uh, his approach to politics and law, not just his work in economics. And I want to tell the viewers before I really start ripping on Hayek, as I expect I shall, in just a moment, uh, that I do find uh, his work in those areas extremely valuable. I think that he... Um, the use of uh, it, it, some of his uh, work on how knowledge, the role of knowledge in economics and politics, uh, and it's going to be directly related to what we talk about, we, uh, I think, with the fatal conceit, which is what we wanted to talk about. Um, but some of that is profoundly insightful. I cite it to this day when I uh, write papers on uh, politics. Uh, F.A. Hayek was an important thinker. Now, he made a lot of big mistakes. In 1988, he, he taught it. Uh, well, let's do a little background. Let's back up a little if I can. I, I, I was just going to say, <clears throat> excuse me. So uh, it's funny because I love Hayekian economics. Um, he may be after Mises, my next favorite. I, I don't know. I'm not going to swear to that right now because somebody could be pushing and, and I'd concede. But Mises is my favorite economist. But I love Hayekian economics, but it's interesting because Milton Friedman said that he likes Hayek for his social philosophy, but he finds his economics unreadable. The fact, but I've read that, you know, the Keynes-Hayek debates and, and him just going right at Keynes, which I thought was great. But he's anybody interested in knowing that stuff, I mean, if you just general Austrian economics can find out about that, and, and I anticipate you and I discussing Mises and discussing Rothbard in the future. So I, I want to go shy away from that a little bit. And I want to talk about the type of stuff that you're getting into. So, but the first question I have for you is, is this, explain to us the sort of Darwinian aspect of Hayekian philosophy. I happen to think that it's very good. It's very reminiscent of Burke, Edmund Burke. Some of the conclusions that he draws from it is where I would disagree, but I want to see your your thinking of it. First, I want to see if we're on the same page as far as what he even meant. So just try to explain a little bit about that, the sort of evolution of societies, the stuff that he talks about. Human, uh, human society is uh, ever going change. And he's trying to explain, and you're correct in identifying intellectual roots in uh, Burke, more than Edmund Burke, you can find find it in Hume, Adam Smith, John Stuart Mill, Herbert Spencer, Herbert Spencer. Talk about the relationship between evolution 
and economics. Yeah. Uh, Herbert Spencer, <laughs> uh, absolutely a pioneer of Hayek's thought in this regard. So it's not just Austrian economics. When he backs up to talk politics, he's bringing in the entire classical liberal tradition, in my view. And you've identified Burke's conservative traditionally, but the uh, other classical liberals such as Mill, uh, Adam Smith, uh, people like that are deep, yeah, Herbert Spencer, deeply influential on this thought. Let's take any example that you want. Say, um, uh, you know, it's best to do this perhaps biographically. Go with language. Go use right. his, his use his analogy of language, because his point was that language is not something that was designed by a single individual. That's the point. Yeah. Nothing of real value socially, according to Hayek, is the result of rational planning. Intentional, deliberate planning is not the source of most of the great values that society produces. It's the product of the term that he's most carefully, so most closely associated with is spontaneous order. And yes. what we mean by spontaneous order, the concept that Hayek really put on the map and made famous, is that it's not deliberate. It's not intentional. There's nothing purposeful. There's nothing planned. Um, it is the product of simply the natural interaction of individuals in large numbers over a period of time. And so something like the division of labor or language, these institutions or uh, things that we have these grand concepts for now scientifically, they existed long before anyone had named named the division of labor, uh, before linguists and philologists had come along to even tell us what the parts of speech were and how languages evolved. People were using language and evolving language long before there were any scientists of language or linguists. Eh? People were trading and specializing long before Adam Smith identified the division of labor. We have all kinds of institutions like that whether it's specialization in the division of labor, language itself, Hayek will say even science. You think, well, science, that's reason. No, no, no. He was a friend of Sir Karl Popper, the, the famous English philosopher uh, who he knew. Uh, in fact, I was going to do this, and let me just take a minute here, sure. a little bio on uh, Frederick Hayek. He came from a highly intellectual Austrian family. He was a cousin of the famous philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein. Both of his children are distinguished biologists, F.A. Hayek. F.A. Hayek came from a distinguished intellectual family. As a young man, he was a socialist. He reads Ludwig von Mises' socialism around 1920 as a young man, and he is shattered. He is absolutely shattered. This scientific planned economy, this planned economy that is, when think of all the benevolent things that socialists want to do. Hayek never abandoned that. Never abandoned, questioned the morality that led him to be a socialist as a young man. But what he was, was completely shattered by Mises' economics, planned chaos. The tighter the controls, the more chaos. Yeah. What we need is a free market price system. And what a great example. And it became the model of his spontaneous order, the free market price system. Aha, uh -huh. you cannot interfere with the free market price system. Any interference with that, will what will it do primarily? It will prevent information from flowing to the important players. The consumer and the producer will be blind. If the price of oil should go up, say because of some shortage, some disruption in the supply chain, what does that do? The marginal consumer will slightly tighten his belt on the marginal use. The producer, because there's higher prices, greater profitability, he'll rush in and make more oil. So in order to uh, adjust, and that's what the economy is doing, a thousand times a day in a thousand different in industries. There is no single computer 
that could calculate. Think, think of it. Where shall we put the leather? Shall we put the leather into purses, belts, shoes? And how do we adjust that? And how much is relatively demanded? Where is it most demanded? Without a free market price system, what you will find, Mises argued, is a total discoordination. It is information that is given by free market prices that is vital to the order, orderly working of, the, of a free market economy. This was a kind of spontaneous order that left a deep impression and a shattering of his old rationalistic belief in some top-down imposed system like socialism. So any now he's skeptical for the rest of his life against any of these top-down rationalist systems of thought. And so he's suspicious of them. And soon on principle, he comes to say, in fact, it's downright dangerous. And his last book, published in 1988, The Fatal Conceit, is all about just that. How the attempt to impose rational solutions is inevitably a disaster. We should never attempt to impose, with reason, some plan, some organized scheme for how things should work out. Because guess what? You can't do it. It has to happen spontaneously, organically, from individuals interacting. The only kind of real lasting order is this spontaneous order, whether it's in language, the division of labor, the price mechanism. And so he expanded this view <clears throat> to ethics and everything else about humanity. In fact, if you think about it, there's something about what he says about ethics. Were there ethical philosophers when people first came up with prohibitions, say, against murder or theft? No, in the primitive societies that first developed these prohibitions against murder and theft, the societies, he points out, is a kind of evolution. Though th that tribe over here, which respects private property, is going to thrive and grow and prosper, whereas society Y over here, which doesn't respect private property, they're not going to be as prosperous, efficient, or productive. And so by a process of natural selection, those societies, which for whatever reason, and he doesn't want to get, you know, he'll, he'll trial and error, uh, spontaneous experimentation, this is what he calls it. And I want to talk more about that in a second. But by his way, by his approach of thinking about things, morality shows you, morality itself shows you that it's really not a top-down scientific discovery of a deliberate philosophy that produced societies that respected property rights or had prohibitions against murder. It was a process of social evolution. Those societies which adopted those norms prospered and succeeded vis-a-vis -vis those societies which did not. Now, he believes that that's basically the way history works. It's a kind of social evolution. And so it's an argument, what he is arguing for is against social planning from the top, uh, but also for liberty. So it's simultaneously a defense of tradition and a defense of liberty. So it's, he's sometimes called a conservative, sometimes called a classical, he called himself, as we say, a classical liberal. But he's saying, don't upset, just because you don't know where some institution, some social tradition right. comes from, don't go messing with it. No one knows yet. It's not, it didn't come from rational deliberation, nor do is its value necessarily known to us yet explicitly. So don't tamper with the legacy that we've inherited 
through this process of social evolution. On the other hand, you don't want to impose too many rules because you want that process of evolution to keep going. So he was advocating for freedom, let the process spontaneously continue on its own. We don't want to impose rules. On the other hand, don't be chucking out some uh, socially established, uh, you know, the institution of marriage. People say, oh, that's an old-fashioned institution based in religion. Hayek would immediately rush in and say, wait a minute here. There could be all kinds of benefits to our society. I don't care what the religious justifications that different societies give it. Does the institution of marriage, did it evolve socially for a good reason? And just because we don't know that reason doesn't mean we should chuck the institution of marriage. Does that make sense? So this, in effect, Hayek's approach to all subjects not just economics, but history, morality, science. It's a process of evolution. Okay, so this is where there's a few things. So when I talked about the influence that Burke had on him, what I'm thinking is specifically about what you just said, tampering with evolved institutions. Edmund Burke, of course, had the great debate with Thomas Paine concerning the French Revolution. And Burke said, look, you don't know what is going to happen when you start tampering with these long evolved institutions, whether they be the, the monarchy, the clergy, whatever, these things evolved over thousands of years. And if you rip them out, you don't know what you're going to unleash. And it's reminiscent to me of, of Sigmund Freud and civilization and its discontents, where he talks about what's right underneath the surface. And of course, we have the evidence from the French Revolution when they did rip out those societal structures, what ended up occurring. So Hayek has to have that, you know, historical knowledge in, in his head. He also, of course, knows the theory of all the great classical liberal thinkers. And he also is living in a context where top-down planning is all the rage, where yes. people think that they can literally de- design societies. But he appears to, and and, and w- w- we can discuss this because I think you're going to, I think you're going to go somewhere with this. In his book, The Counter-Revolution of Science, for instance, he appear and he's he's refuting positivism and rationalism. But there's a tendency he seems to have the name the, the subtitle of the counter revolution of science is the I forget exactly, but one of it is the the, the limits of reason, the misuses of reason or something. Yeah. yeah. So he he seems to downplay the value That's of, the key. Of, of reason. Reason. But here's my question to you, and this is where I, I think you and I may disagree, and, and that's fine, is I don't know that he goes so far as to downplay the importance of reason as wanting to keep reason in its proper place and saying what reason can actually do. Because I don't care how much, because reason is not for, or it's actually unreasonable, I guess I would say for people to think they could design societies and plan what's going to be produced, where and when. So, and that, I think, is Hayek's ultimate point. Do you disagree with with, with my assessment? I've got to plug something in. Hold on, I forgot to plug <laughs> sure. in. I did this last time, too. My battery saver. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay, Jim. So he was um, a victim of what Ayn Rand would call contemporary philosophy in spades. He was, I, I, I agree with you that 
you and I would see this would come out in a, in effect in the same policy way in some significant way. In other words, you can't plan society, nor would you want to plan society, nor is society, capital S, something to be planned. Right. Okay, we agree with that. I don't think that, uh, but look, there are only individuals, as Ayn Rand says. I'm a methodological individualist in an Ayn Rand Aristotelian sense. So I don't want anybody uh, top down apart from, but wait a minute here, aren't there universal norms in ethics? Aren't there universal norms in politics like rights that have to be? And in fact, aren't we morally superior when we stop having slavery? I ask, this is one of my objections to Hayek and his whole theory. Cannibalism was dominant for most of our, as far as I could tell, we were longer for a longer period of time. Uh, Homo sapiens were around. They were cannibals and human sacrificers than otherwise. Now, there's a venerable institution, the product of spontaneous human evolution, how do you say, no, we're not going to do you slavery? There's a venerable institution. It lasted well until the 19th century, even in the civilized world. I would say I am against Hayek's defense of tradition as such. That is a pernicious thing, period, full stop. I'm on Paine's side on the Burke-Paine debate, even though the French Revolution was a disaster. The American Revolution worked, and it is true, Hayek would rush in to say, America was the beneficiary of a long, slow process of evolution, the English evolution of the le legal system and rights. The French never had it. He's right, but that shows the power of reason, the power of ideas, not the opposite. It was the fact that uh, the common law, uh, the jury system, parliament, the rights of man, John Locke, that was much more institutionalized in the English legal world Right. the English culture than in the French culture. And it, England's evolution away from absolute monarchy laid the groundwork for the success of the American Revolution in a way that, of course, the destruction of the Ancien Regime in France would lead only to, you know, uh, the reign of terror and Robespierre cutting off a lot of heads. <laughs> and what would they get? Napoleon. We got Thomas Jefferson. So big difference with the French and American revolutions that do make a study, but they make a study, I think, in the power of ideas well, the right. power I mean, of ideas and reason, yeah. not the opposite. Yeah. He would say, look, the spontaneous evolution of the English system is what made it great. I would say, no, it was the ideas, the ideas that had been inculcated and established among English lawyers who our founding fathers basically were versus uh, the French revolutionaries. Um, and, that... and, to you, and to your point about ideas, the French revolution, at least the, the it, there's, it's complicated because there's there's different parts of the French revolution. But the the reign of terror and Marat and Robespierre that you know conducted it were largely influenced by Rousseau, who had much different ideas than Locke. John Locke. Right. So th so there there is truth to what you you're saying, and there's also I think slavery is a good example, an evolved institution. And I agree, it should be abolished. Oh, it lasted so long, yeah, but let's lasting so long. Yes. It could give it the the, the for, well, the high X premises, yeah. you. It has a huge weight in its favor. Here we are, say in the year eighteen hundred. What, yeah. do, pro, Professor Hayek, are you pro or con slavery? He would say, "Whoa, don't be tampering with slavery." How long has it lasted? Just because your reason has some objection just because your theoretical view of politics or morale. No, you don't want a top-down solution to slavery. Let slavery sort of evolve 
on its own. Now, yeah. do you think slavery would have evolved away? I don't. Uh, I, I don't know, but I do know this. There, there is an element of truth to, to the Hayekian position when you look at slavery. And what I mean is this, not that it shouldn't have been abolished, it should, but the warning that Edmund Burke and the warning that Hayek would give is that there's going to be results that you're not going to like. And I think that that's true because it didn't end organically, because it was ended with force. There were, you know, you ended up with the uh, convict leasing and, and sharecropping and, and then Jim Crow laws and the KKK. I mean, there were all types of bad effects. I would say it's still worth it to end slavery. All I'm saying is that Hayek's warning what it would be in that situation is is legitimate. It doesn't mean don't do anything, but but, it, but it's an accurate does, assessment of the results. And he does caution us to worry about unforeseen consequences. Uh, he, there will be. And the point is that change is risky, always. And this is something that he simply observes about social evolution. Change is risky. Now, can anyone deny that change is risky? Of course not. No. Couldn't there be unforeseen consequences that people have no clue are going to happen down the road? Of course there are. Uh, and, you know, the truth is, though, that if you look at something like the fatal conceit, it's a rat or reasoned out case using theoretical logic and reason, saying how reason has its limits. And that's really what it's all about. He... Uh, he appreciates that reason can play a role. I think this is what you were getting at. But reason can only play a supplementary role. It's sort of like uh, uh, rational secular philosophy to the old medieval Christian. <laughs> it's, it can be a supplement to our faith, like with Augustine or something, but reason can't be the, in the driver's seat. Intentional, oh. deliberate rationality I, should not he, be driving the vehicle. I don't know. And this is the thing. I don't think he would decry, for instance, or complain about the rationality of an entrepreneur, for instance, because it's reason to look at prices. It's rational to decide what a, an individual entrepreneur or businessman is going to do based on reason. That's the problem with Hayek. He does not regard the individual common sense sort of reason as capital R reason. Only big grand intellectual theories like Marxism, socialism, or even free market Adam Smithism. If it doesn't get some grand ideology, capital R reason. If I were to say to you, obviously, say, let's go through the examples. And this really is helpful. The division of labor, specialization. You bake the bread, I'll make the clothes. If we specialize, we'll both have better bread and we'll both have better clothes. Now, did it take a genius to figure that out? No, but it was reason. It was observation and logic yeah. applied on an individual level. On a micro Every, level, right? On a micro level. Okay, so this I think is is, is getting to what, what my point is. When I, when I think of Hayek, and I'm not saying he didn't go too far in his critique of reason. I'm not saying that because he very well may have and probably did. did. What I'm saying is that there is an, an interpretation of Hayek that could be that what he was saying is reason in its place. At the micro level, great. Like, and you just talk in trying to design overall societies. He uses, he says good. In, in the fatal conceit, he quite explicitly discounts that as being reason or logic. Okay. He says, we it's uh, spontaneous experimentation, trial and error, 
go back to the murder rules that I was talking about, the theft rules we were talking about in primitive societies. I'd call BS on it. The society that adopted the rule against theft had a reason when they adopted sure. that rule against theft. Yes. It was observation. Hey, that guy stole from this guy. That wasn't good. That wasn't cool. It was not only unfair. It not only was disincentivizing. Right. They could see firsthand the problems. Not all the. They couldn't see it as a social problem. Well, gee, if everyone did this, what would? No, that wasn't injustice. That hurt us. One guy counterfeits money. That's not the state printing money, but we could see how it affects all of our money. This guy's ripping us off. Murder. Do you need? <laughs> it's not. It is pure reason in effect. Now, reason at a very might use a micro level. It is a generalization. It is a generalization that if I intentionally kill you, except in self-defense or defense of others, it is wrong and I should be punished. That does not, that is an act of reason. Yeah. I don't need yet life, objectivist meta-ethics. I don't need life as the standard. One can, from the ground up, inductively realize things about honesty. It's for well, very, I mean, look, yeah. for very, look, it's pure reason that I'm honest with you. Look, I need your trust. I value tr your trust. Yes. I get caught in one lie. You have every right to distrust me thereafter. I lose the value. It's perfectly rational. Yeah. Same thing Whether with thefts. I realize I don't want to be stolen from. If you're stealing from that guy, you're going to steal from me. You know, let's lock you up or kill and, you, whatever they did. And similarly, the spontaneous order of the market is only the backup to see what all the little dots are, how they're, or they're organizing. Each of those little dots is reason. I Every agree. transaction yeah. on the market, when I buy or sell a stock, when I buy or sell some product at the store. It's oh, I, I see. I would. I don't think it's always reason. I mean, people well, make all kinds of this, irrational right. decisions. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> In a free market, reason is definitely encouraged. You will suffer if there's no government to bail you out. You will suffer from the irrational. So, I, so there's a certain point that I would add that augments uh, Hayek's point. So long as people are free, reason is tremendously uh, encouraged. Yeah. So it's true. People can shoot themselves in the head, act stupidly, buy the obviously more expensive product, et cetera, et cetera. In a free market, there will be a strong tendency for people to go by the facts and do the thing that they perceive to be in their long-term, well, uh, self-interest. Yeah, and, and just to, uh, you know, to kind of... Uh support your point is Hayek does say even entrepreneurs are largely lucky uh you know they don't just it's not skill that gets people rich all the time it's often again i call absolute bs I, I, I do too studied, I, and you know it's ayn rand who's led me to the study of the great inventors and business people in american and british history my god these men knew exactly what they were doing yeah i agree i think hayek's wrong didn't appreciate the petroleum business he sure the heck did Henry Ford knew exactly what he was doing. Andrew Carnegie knew exactly what he was doing. Vanderbilt and Fulton and all the inventors. And uh, uh, no, you know, they'll even say, Hayek will make a big point about accidental discoveries like penicillin. I could not have accidentally discovered penicillin, okay? I had to have been a microbiologist, uh, you know, studying things through a microscope, aware of funguses and their impact on other living organisms, if I don't have this huge context of reason all uh, keyed up and loaded up for me, there's no way I can accidentally discover penicillin. Okay, 
even that is pure reason, no accident at all. And he says it's all accident, all trial and error. Don't try and be deliberate. Don't, if look, we own a big piece of land. There's some fence that isn't separating it. It's just sitting there. It's an example he uses. There's a fence sitting in the yard. No one knows why it's there. It's not even a complete fence. Anyone can get around it by walking. Why do, shouldn't we pull out that fence? No, no. You may have no idea where that fence came from or why it's there, but don't tamper with it. Sight unseen until we have a damn good reason. Hayek says, you leave that fence alone. Now that is a radical opposition to reason and its capacity to improve human life. Now, um, I, I have to say that uh, I would go even further. He believed science itself was irrational in its evolution. Under the influence of Karl Popper, science was a product of evolution. Spontaneous, non-rational evolution. Now, if science is a product of non-rational evolution, I think we're all out of uh, subjects here to be uh, even brought in. I Yes, I agree with a couple of things that I want to make sure everyone understands what I'm saying. What appears to be the collective spontaneous order really is no more than, and only to the extent that, individuals are bringing rational order to their own lives. And no spontaneous order exists apart from the individualized rational orders that individuals are bringing to their life. On the other hand, is there a wider pattern that could be discerned that was no one's plan? Yes, of so course. The, the, price, the price system, for instance. I think that exactly. I, I, I'm realizing as we're talking that the better way for me to state this is the lesson I think I take from Hayek and maybe a, a lesson that we should be taking is to know the place of reason. That reason cannot be used to design societies and, and plan people's lives. That's that's not rational well, to try never to do questioned, so. He never had anything clear about force and how force was the issue. Force stops reason. And since force right. negates reason, right. rational progressing, this is the real point. Not only do I agree that there are patterns of order that are not a deliberate product of anyone, but I also agree that history, human history is the product of a kind of evolution, social evolution. But I would ask Professor Hayek, what is a mutation? In biological evolution, radiation and other factors just cause spontaneous changes to DNA. Um, those are mostly bad. They mostly work they're negative. Only on the rare chance that a physical DNA mutation is advantageous does it get passed along to the descendants. Well, in social evolution, what is a mutation? A new idea. A new thought. Reason is 100% the source of all mutation. Which Let we me... had with John Locke, right? With, with John right. Locke's the two treatises on government would be... A, a, well, a let's mutation. put it this way. To the extent... We're... Adam Smith discovers the uh, division of labor long after, of course, the division of labor had been in practice and used. Once someone says out loud what's going on, identifies the big pattern of spontaneous order. Isn't that what Adam Smith was doing? Discovering the concept division of labor. Yeah. Now we can institutionalize it. Now we know, oh, that's a really good thing. Now we want to make sure that we preserve and in fact augment the uh, specialization and the division of labor. Before Adam Smith, people were engaged in taking advantage of the division of labor. Once it was self-consciously discovered as a 
abstract principle, now we have the ability to institutionalize, preserve, and protect it for all time. So not only is Hayek wrong about what creates the division of labor, he's not giving the grand theory its credit. But Adam I think Smith's that, big R reason is what saves the division of labor. Yeah, but I think Hayek actually would agree with that point about institutionalizing it because only because of his defense of the rule of law is he well, understood the rule of law was necessary. Also, I just want to say in his defense, because I happen to have read it today, so it's fresh in my memory, in his essay, Why I'm Not a Conservative, he discuss, he do, does talk about not preserving traditions just because they're traditions. He talks about we need to preserve the traditions that work. We need to have ideas that work and policies that actually work. Well, the, the, I said well, that's why I said it exactly as I said it. All of the ceteris paribus, all of the things being equal, we have an, a venerable tradition. We don't know in the I don't know keep. If we know it's good, definitely keep. If we know it's bad, get rid of. But until we know there's a problem, until we have a problem with that meaningless fence in the yard, we leave it there. Yeah, I mean, just the, my my, my thing, point is, I just Hayek was crystal clear that he is not a conservative. He was absolutely not a yeah, conservative. And, and if he's just he if he's just tradition, conserving, then it's but he does give tradition an unseen benefit of the doubt. That is to say, okay, I until think and unless we really know what we're doing, we leave that fence that we have no known purpose for standing. That is exactly what he argues yeah. in the conceit. Until we really know, don't go tampering. And in fact, even if we really know, <clears throat> wait a minute here. If we're going to institutionalize property rights, that's an act of reason, understanding. And until we understand, and John Locke gave us really good reasons to understand the basis of property rights. Um, and so after someone like John Locke, it's John Locke who's the guy who, the big R reason that kills slavery. Adam Smith is the big R reason that institutionalizes division of labor. So not only, as I say, is Hayek wrong on the micro level, that's reason too, but big theories are also very important to save the day. It's true they can kill the day. Like Let so me ask you this, Jim. I got a question about that. Yes. And, and it's not that I'm, I disagree, but I just think it, it's context is largely, it's very context dependent. And what I mean is this. So Locke comes along, I think in 1690 or 1689, and he writes the two trees. The 1689, right after the glorious revolution. Yeah, right. But here's the thing. He didn't write that in Zimbabwe, for instance. He wrote it in a country- oh, no. He wrote uh, wrote it in a country in in England, where you had already. I mean, you had before him Edwin Edmund Edward Coke Edwin Co Edward Cook, right? You've had uh, thinkers prior to him. You had Magna Carta, for instance. You the had the evolution yeah. of the English legal system from Magna Carta, the development of the jury system, yeah, yeah the petition law, of right, for instance, um, the habeas corpus, all types of things all that the natural law and all the, the Hugo Grotius the world right. the natural law thinkers the legal thinkers that preceded him the philosophers that came right. before him he reacted very negatively to hobbes he had some agreement and some disagreement with descartes he was a deeply educated man plugged into an intellectual tradition and part of an english cultural legal tradition that he was uh, trying to show the best elements of and how they could be purified to the betterment of the English-speaking world. <laughs> right. So my point is that he wrote that in a context in which people were ready for it. 
some people, not everybody. Right. So in that sense, the, the evolution of the society sort of coincides with the great idea. And similarly, when, when the American founders implement the ideas of Hayek, I mean, of Hayek, of, of, <laughs> of, 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 of Locke, of, yeah. of Montesquieu, right? these ideas are already taking shape. They're, they're already, uh, like like you said, with the division of labor, for instance, is it already existed before Adam Smith identified? There's already some reality to it. Right. It, it, it's, it, they're, they're ripe for it. In many ways, they were reclaiming their rights as Englishmen. The, the, the Very much so. Right. So Hayek, I, I guess, is that it, it's he has a point about the evolution, but he does uh, what's the word I'm looking for underappreciate the importance of the great idea. I'd go further. That, I'd go further. He does it. not understand reason. He first of all, he doesn't challenge morality. It's not as though he believes there's objective morality. No, under he the doesn't. Baleful no, I, I, influence, under the baleful influence of David Hume. He yes. believes that values are radically subjective and right. rooted in psychology and emotion that is sort of in itself. And there's sort of, you know, this wild id that we have to deal with from what I can gather about Hayek. Um, uh, and he would say, yes, I'm plugged into modern psychology, very much Freud, sort of Austrian uh, uh, psychology. But he would say, yeah, that's our instinctive, you know, emotional nature. And that's where values come from. Just like Hume, they're basically uh, uh, statements of emotional preference. They're given. Givens. He does not appreciate reason epistemologically at all. Okay. He does not appreciate, he does not, so morality he's not objective about. There can be no reason to morality. You just forget that as a very premise. Secondly, reason itself on an epistemological level He's very skeptical of, as I say, science itself is a product of spontaneous evolution. And uh, so, uh, but understand, if we say that trial and error and sheer accident can't explain it, which it can't, the division of labor or a theft law came about by, as you say, micro reason. That's a nice term there. Individualized reason is what it was, but it was still reason. Nonetheless, grander theories do play an important role. Indeed, from the dawn of time, religion has played a vital role. And we plug in our moral values to religion from the emergence of human civilization. And Hayek is totally at, at a loss in terms of trying to explain the relation. Uh, he's not a religious guy, right? Then Hayek, Ms. Professor Hayek explained to me, why is it that people need this philosophy thing in the form of religion to justify their social norms and institutions? Uh, no, big ideas, big I ideas, big theory ideas are inevitable, inescapable. Furthermore, they're a good thing. Mises's, Adam Smith's, John Locke's. Big theories can justify rationally if we can use reason to defend the free market uh, institutionally, then, of course, that's a much solid, more solid base than saying, well, I don't really know why, which is an effect at the end of the day, what he's forced to say. I don't really know why. I just don't tamper with a bunch of it, even if I don't know why. I which think is that the values, the, 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 your value point, I think, is great because he he is very much a human when it comes Ooh. to epistemology and, and values. You're, you're right. Yeah. And that I think is where he's most open to criticism 
even oh, more so is, is on the values. He's it, a disaster. It, yes, because it's what ends happened. up happening, and this is why he's even amongst libertarians often isn't thought highly of because he ends up allowing for welfare programs, for instance, things of that nature. He was a proud environmentalist. Yeah, because he doesn't he, he doesn't appreciate he doesn't accept the what Ayn Rand would call the non-initiation of force and what libertarians would call the non-aggression principle. Oh. He, See, he that's does. a big our grand theory, and we want to we want right. to stay away from all those grand theories that have reason allegedly behind them. Right, and he allows for <laughs> for a lot of government inroads into things that otherwise he probably wouldn't. He he's, has he's, no he's, appreciation for how Aristotle can allow science. See, were people engaged in rational, logical thought before Aristotle? Yeah, when people self consciously. When a big grand theory like Aristotle's discover reason and logic, what does that do for the use of logic in society? When a person like Adam Smith self-consciously discovers the division of labor, what does that do to our ability to protect the and in fact, advance the division of labor to the well-being of all of us? But for those grand theories that we develop with deliberate reason, we would have no clue. In fact, this Professor Hayek is kind of a grand theory because it's telling us how to manage tradition and innovation and evolution. Right. So he's in right. he's, again, he's engaged in a kind of what Ayn Rand calls stolen concept. He's giving us a grand theory as to why grand theories are all suspicious. And and he ultimately is a utilitarian. And this again, is where he doesn't question right. altruism. He doesn't question the social value standard. He is fully, he's, he's still the young socialist that he ever was. Only now he's added a radical skepticism about theories as such, because he got burned as a young man by, by believing in socialism, and Mises told him, you were wrong, kid. And so from that moment forward, he was traumatized, and since socialism failed for the young Hayek, all grand theories were thereafter suspicious. In a sense, he precedes postmodernism. You know, after the middle of the 20s, he was way before the postmoderns, say, of the 1950s, but 1960s. But, you know, in the middle of the 20th century, Marxism was a disaster. Totalitarianism was a huge failure, whether it was Bolshevik communism or Nazism, Italian fascism, socialism was in crisis. What do left-wing thinkers do? They do, in effect, what Hayek do, does. Grand theories out, uh, big theories out. We can't figure this out. No one can figure it out. Uh, so what do they become? Postmodernist, deconstructionist. Do their politics change? Not one little bit. They still have their Marxist agenda, only they're not repairing to Marxist theories of history and politics to justify it. Hayek, on a smaller scale, went through that much earlier than the postmoderns, He, but he abandoned socialism. He was burned by grand theories, dismissed Marxism and socialism, but he didn't become a full-on postmodernist. But in one sense, he is a, one of the very first post-socialist, post-modernist thinkers, because his being burned with the grand theory of socialism as a young man led him to be suspicious of all grand theories thereafter. Well, two two things, and, and I'm not going to disagree with you. I just want to, want to say that is the, the dangers of utilitarianism, and I think Ayn Rand demonstrates this, is it, it allows for, as opposed to a defense of capitalism based on individual rights, if you can find or pinpoint the one situation where a greater people, a greater number of people will benefit from a government intrusion, utilitarian justifies that. Right. Whereas an individual rights defense of capitalism will not. 
now, 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 in reality, I grant it that the two aren't severed. Defending individual rights ultimately leads to the greatest benefit of the greatest amount of people. But the theory matters. The, the, the reason you're defending capitalism matters. But now I want to say in, in, in Hayek's defense, one point that I just thought of that he did identify, and I thought it was great in The Road to Serfdom, when he says that socialism and fascism are not opposites. No, right. as was argued that you have you know the nazis right. and, and and the russians are two totally different things he argues that they're the same thing just in different stages of development and i think that they're that right. is an important thing yeah because the they're both collectivism yes the benevolent influence of Mises can be seen there. He's better than your ordinary leftist uh, postmodernist, no doubt. He is not tempted. He's abandoned socialist uh, tendencies altogether, <laughs> and he's become free market in his basic orientation, although he can't be principled. He can't be strict. You'll notice he can't have clear-lined rules either. We want to keep the rules kind of fuzzy at the edges on purpose. That's the Hayekian approach. Keep your rules kind of loosey-goosey, flexible, fuzzy, and we'll feel as we go. That's sort of his, his approach to public policy. Slowly feel your way through a dark room is sort of the analogy I would use. Uh, but yeah, he was, as I say, he did his great work in price theory on the business cycle. In the late 1920s, yes. 1930s, he debated the great Lord Keynes. He achieved the uh, admiration of people like George Orwell, no less. So he was, and his influence on Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan is huge. There's still, you know, Hayek memorials at the London School of Economics. The guy is one of the most influential uh, social scientists of the 20th century, without a doubt. Um, and uh, on the other hand, as a philosopher, as a philosopher, he sucks uh, big time. He embodies some of the Jim, words. Jim, please, not such technical language. We need to... <laughs> <laughs> he well he embodies some of the worst uh humian and even sometimes kantian ideas even though he does reject marxism and hegelianism quite explicitly that he got burned with um but he has yet to really in any of his work to really let go of uh the humian skepticism and that's what deeply affects deeply affects uh, his thinking about just about everything is a kind of value skepticism, a skepticism about the power of reason, a, a belief that our knowledge is always vague and approximate anyway, and that we're sort of groping towards, ever groping toward, closer towards something we'll never quite reach. Um, but on the other hand, there are some very clear things that Mises taught him about how socialism cannot work. Well, there again is a big R theoretical reason that's giving him some generalizations that can be applied universally. I couldn't, uh, when I read socialism, I grant, grant you I wasn't a socialist when I read Mises as a socialist, but when I read socialism, already oriented towards the free market, I could see, well, yeah, this is one of these grand theories. This itself is one of those grand theories that Hayek himself would tell us to be cautious of. Well, we're going to talk about right Mises would, in an upcoming episode. Yeah, well, he would have... Don't, yeah, go too, idea don't, don't give away too much. To run away from. See, Mises could appreciate Rand in a way I think Hayek could never have appreciated Rand. Because Mises was uh, yeah. never skeptical about development. Because Mises believed that he, 
could develop through praxeology, what he called the science of praxeology, a theory of human action that could explain the whole of not just economics, but social history and through a big R grand reason theory that, of the kind that Hayek himself, since Mises was like Rand in that they were both constructors of big theories, uh, in that sense, like Marx. In that sense, like Karl Marx, Hayek is opposed to the very approach of, uh, in certain fundamental ways, not just someone like Rand, but even his great teacher. He never realized that the great teacher who had got that refuted socialism for him was actually presenting a bunch of generalizations. And in human action, you can see why Hayek would back away a little bit at the human action thing. Oh, well, can we have a comprehensive theory of praxeology? <laughs> Hold the phone there, uh, Lou. Um, you see? You think he called them Lou? <laughs> well, I think Lou is what they called Lou. <laughs> His friends called him Lou. <laughs> Maybe Louie. <laughs> Louis. <laughs> All right. So I, in, before we wrap up, I want to just, so I would say that the strengths of Hayek, some of which we didn't cover are in price theory, capital yeah, theory. Exactly. Trade let, cycle theory. Oh, exactly. He's one of the great economists of the 20th century right. when it comes to prices and business cycle, no doubt. I, I think that he did a, a good job of pointing out uh, how large systems uh, sort of come about spontaneously, meaning not planned by some overseer. And I think he does a good job of pointing out that the economy shouldn't be designed in in planned the great job but i think he goes too far in his skepticism right and in, in, in his value rejection a big grand philosophical justification right. for us to to ban force and say we shouldn't be imposed no if we want if we want the kind of world, free market liberal world that hayek is is laying out let me suggest that only a moral justification an economic justification we're going to need some big grand theories we're going to need moralists political theories. We're going to need economists. We're going to need some big R theorists there, Professor Hayek. And only with that, see, Ayn Rand's prescription for cultural change is exactly the opposite. We need intellectuals. We need new intellectuals. We need economists and political thinkers. We need artists. We need all yeah. kinds of thinkers to use their reason. Um, and yeah, it, it, the, the problem is he is a victim of modern philosophy. His case for the free market and his own development, I think, would have been much stronger. I mean, how at the end of the day do you even justify his thinking about uh, the business cycle or the free market price mechanism without some deeper premises, without some real scientific truth? If I were to say, if I were to be consistently Popperian, he was a buddy, like I say, of Sir Karl Popper, the famous philosopher of science, and he was sucked into that whole Popperian way of looking at things. <laughs> Doesn't that really also undermine uh, economics as a science? Uh, that's actually something that I've thought when, when reading Hayek. Okay, one more thing I want to say before we go is you and I have both talked about Adam Smith sort of discovering or identifying the division of labor. And that is the commonly held narrative. I understand. Right. But I just want to say that it's it's by no means universally accepted that he did. So there were some great Spanish scholastic Mur economists. And, oh, Spanish, no, more than that. You know who? <laughs> yeah, Murray, Rothbard. Murray Rothbard hated him. <laughs> it, it, well, he actually made the argument to me. Jim, I'll do my Murray Rothbard. Jim, Aristotle was the first Austrian. 
<laughs> and so if you read Aristotle's politics is uh, some of his ethics even you can put things together in such a way that it appears that uh, Aristotle himself had some of these profound insights about division of labor even I mean he definitely had a belief about people doing their own things people finding the right place and things like that and natural slavery yeah. was part of it. Yeah. but finding your right role was key to Aristotle's yeah. view of society as a whole um, and more than that we pointed out something even more profound. Even before Aristotle, the division of labor oh, was sure. understood yeah, yeah. and even conceptually. Hey, specialization makes the bread better, makes the clothes better. You don't I mean, that's reason too. Noticing that and saying, yeah, let's keep that up. Let's keep trading. That's uh, a recognition at one level, not abstractly. And let's face it, it did take someone like Adam Smith to sort of put economics on the map so that people could say, hey, wait a minute, what is the role of this division of labor thingy? And in that regard, Adam Smith made it a commonplace concept. Well, he popularized the, the Exactly. Idea. What did Rothbard say? I think he said that Adam Smith discovered nothing good that was nothing new that was good and everything, or he didn't say anything new that was good and everything he said that was good wasn't new, I think is what Rothbard said. But I yeah. got to tell you, I'm looking forward to doing an episode about Rothbard just to get you to do the voice. <laughs> the voice will be phenomenal. That's just, I love it every time you do it. <laughs> Just don't make me do my Ayn Rand or my Ludwig von Mises. <laughs> All right, Jim. So where where can the audience find you? For those who haven't heard you tell them before, where can they find you? Uh, well, I frequently do. I'm a regular uh, at the Ayn Rand Center UK and the podcasts we do there. I would urge everyone to check out. If you like this kind of material, Michael is also a regular uh, guest and host over at the Ayn Rand Center UK. Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm also active on Facebook. Almost every day I'm there answering questions, whether it's about my history or about objectivism. Um, and uh, I have a website, www.creatingchrist.com. Um, and uh, that's basically it. <laughs> and sometimes on Facebook, you can even see the two of us team up. Team up, arguments. exactly. The tag team champs. <laughs> Jim, thanks for being back on the show. Really appreciate it. Always fun, my brother. Always fun. <laughs> for now, this is the Rational Egoist signing out. I'm Michael Leibowitz. Remember, let me know what you think. It's very important. Till next time.